In the past four weeks, uh, we've been going through the book of Mark, and today we're actually continuing that, that sermon series. Uh, so this will be part five of the Mark sermon series that we're going through. If you're joining us for the first time, don't worry, I'll give you a short recap. Um, even if it's not your first time, it's good to hear a recap of what we've learned in the past four weeks. It'll give you a good jog of the memory. So, Gospel of Mark. In the first week, we talked about the beginning of the Gospel, how uh, the writer of the book of Mark, whose name is Mark, uh, he, he, he begins the book with a confession. He lays out what the book will be about. He says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And this is the foundation of what he's writing about, right? He's, he's giving you a purpose statement for what he's writing. And in the second week, we talked about the invitation that Jesus gives to us, um, that Jesus gives an invitation for forgiveness for sinners. He gives an invitation to the weary into rest. He gives the invitation to people that are outcasts to belong. And he gives an invitation for those that are over-religious or those that uh, need to wonder again. He gives an invitation into awe. That was the second week. The third week, we talked about the kingdom, the kingdom of God. And how Jesus compares the kingdom to a seed. The kingdom of God is a seed. And it is sown in soil. And it bears good fruit. And how the seed is actually the word of God. The seed was actually Jesus himself. He's giving us this kingdom comparison of the seed being the word of God. Of being himself. Of being Jesus. That was what we talked about in the kingdom of God. And last week, we talked about the miracles of Jesus, the miracles of Jesus, how he compared the kingdom, uh, the, how Jesus had power over nature, how he had power over demons, how he had power over sickness, over death, over over familiarity, over offense, and even unbelief. Jesus is a God who has power over these things. So today, in our fifth part of our Mark sermon series, we're going to talk about something um, that happens in chapter 8. And it's, I like to call it the turning point. The turning point. Oh, too quick. The turning point. So before I get into uh, the actual sermon, I want to give you a little uh, bit of my history. I actually grew up uh, in Texas, and I went to the University of Texas at Austin. And there I studied film. Film production, film post-production especially. And as a film major, you actually study a lot of storytelling. You have to learn how to tell a story before you actually make a movie or write any manuscript, right? So I was taught that any good story, um, any film or novel or comic book, it will follow this simple formula, right? This simple formula. Does anyone know what this is? Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to explain it to you. Even if you know, I'll just explain it to you. This is called a plot diagram. And you, you probably have learned this uh, briefly in the past in like English class or in high school or somewhere, something like that. And the plot diagram has some basic elements to it of storytelling, to tell a good story, right? The first part is the exposition, the introduction. It lays down the characters. It tells you who the good guy is going to be, who the bad guy is going to be, and how they're going to clash, right? It lays out the identities of who this story will be about. That's the exposition. Then we get to the second part of the story, this little dot, this first dot on the left. is called the conflict, the conflict, or I like to call this part the turning point of the story, the turning point. 
And this is the part in the story where the problem is introduced. We have these, these characters and the problem of why they're going to clash. This is uh, what the whole story is going to be about, pretty much. We have these characters, and this is their problem. So after we get to this conflict, we get to multiple conflicts after that. Right? There's a series of conflicts, and this, uh, conflicts, and this is called the rising action. The rising action. There's conflict after conflict after conflict. And then we get to this point where it becomes a climax. The, the huge con- conflict at the very end of the story, right? This is where there's like a final battle uh, in a Marvel movie. Or like this is a part of the story where uh, the protagonist is about to figure out what the mystery is the whole time, right? Or, or where this person is about to confess his love for the person that he loves, right? This is the climax of the movie. And after this happens is the falling action, like things happen where things are wrapped up, and then the finale or the resolution, right? French term is denouement. This is a French term, a fancy French term um, that you learn as a film major. Um, But this is the part where, like, the hero rides off into the sunset with the girl, right? So that's the finale. So these are the basic rules. These are the basic, this is the basic formula of storytelling and film writing and so if you want to be a good screenwriter you have to follow these rules but there are some times where the filmmakers like really smart ones know these rules and know how to break the rules so they will change the order of this Uh, they will they will put the exposition at the end they will start with the the finale and then they will go backwards right or they'll add a plot twist at the end they'll add like something at the end that blows your mind and it's like, oh, man, I didn't see that coming, right? But they were hinting at it the whole time, right? But for, general, for people like us, normal people like us, not geniuses, we have to follow this normal structure of storytelling. And if any of these parts are missing, then you have a bad story. If you're missing the conflict of the story, like if it's all just exposition, you're just laying down who the character is, it's a pretty boring story. Nothing happens. None, there are no stakes raised. There are, there's nothing that is going on in this story, right? And if you have one part of this story that's too long, let's say the exposition is too long, then you'll feel like this story is very boring. It's dragging on too long. Oh, man, this movie is so long. Even though it's only an hour and a half, it feels like this movie is so long, right? That's what happens if you don't follow these rules correctly, okay? So the author of the gospel that we're going through, Mark, he writes this story about Jesus, but we actually believe that the Bible is written by God himself, right? He inspires writers to write his book, and God is a great author. He's a great storyteller. So for the past few weeks, we've been discussing much of the exposition portion of the book of Mark. Jesus comes onto the scene. He establishes who he is. This is my identity. I am one with authority. I've come to heal. I've come to preach. I've come to teach. I have power over nature. People come to him to receive healing. People come to him to receive teaching. And then people come to him ultimately to challenge his authority as well. But in the first eight chapters of Mark, we see this. Jesus establishes himself as someone that has authority. And so we get to our text today in Mark chapter 8. And it comes after Jesus has done this. He's established his identity. And I want us to read this text again. I know we read it earlier, but I want us to read it again. We're going to do a Korean style. So Korean style is a, a style of reading in the church where um, the, 
the presider reads one verse, and then the audience or the congregation reads the second verse. And then we take turns until the very last verse, and we read the last verse together. So we're going to do that. Um, and I made it easy for us. I made the white portion my part and the yellow portion your part. So it is, it's going to be easy for you guys, okay? So let's begin from chap, uh, chapter 8, verse 27. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what can a man give in return for his soul? And altogether, for whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Amen. Amen. So this Gospel of Mark has 16 chapters. So the passage that we just read is smack dab in the middle of the Gospel of Mark. And this chapter, in this chapter, we see something that hasn't happened in the previous eight chapters. We see something amazing happen. And that is the first person confesses that Jesus is the Christ. This is actually a very monumental occasion. And remember, Jesus, Christ, that's not his name. Christ is a title that is attributed to like a Messiah or the Holy One of God. And he's usually the person people thought that he was going to save Israel. So we see Peter say, you are the Christ. And before this, no one mentions Jesus as the Christ, except for a demon in chapter 1. A demon says, you are the Christ, the Holy One of God. Prior to this, everyone called Jesus a teacher. Oh, good teacher. Oh, they saw him with authority, but they didn't call him the Christ. Okay? But when we see Peter say this, that you are the Christ, we also see a shift in the tone of the Gospel of Mark. In the previous eight chapters, there was an establishment. I, already, I mentioned this. There was an establishment of the authority of Jesus, right? He, he, he's someone with power. He's someone that can cast out demons, right? He is, he's the messenger, but he's also the message. He's saying the kingdom of God is here. The reign of God is here through me. He has power over nature. He says, be still, right? He has power over sickness. He says, be healed. He has power over demons. He says, be gone. He establishes himself as one with authority. He's a king. He's a lion, right? This is the first eight chapters. But once Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ, there is an evident shift in the way that Jesus is portrayed. 
There's a shift from one portrayed with authority to one that has to suffer. One that has to suffer. If we look at verse 29 again, it says, And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. See, verse 31 is the first of what we call passion predictions. Jesus predicts his own betrayal. He predicts his own death and suffering, right? And this happens three times uh, in the book of Mark after chapter 8. And in chapters 8 to 16, there's a shift from the actions of Jesus to the teachings of Jesus. In chapters 1 through 8, he's a man of action. He goes and does this. Immediately he goes and does this. But after chapter 8, he teaches talks in parables. He, he sits down. Not much ha- happens. The action slows down. So there's a shift from the narrative, from the authority of Jesus to the suffering of Jesus. But not just that, but the pace of the story slows down as well. And in the center of this shift is what we call Peter's confession. Peter's confession. Now, If you were to describe Peter's confession on the plot diagram as one of the points on the graph, which one do you think it would be? You'd probably guess that it's the conflict, right? The conflict, the turning point. It's the turning point of the story. And you you wouldn't be wrong. It's actually right. When Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ, there's a shift in the story that happens, right? There's a change in the direction of the story. This sounds like the conflict. Sounds like the turning point. Just as in any good story where the conflict is introduced, the direction of the story changes. And in the Christian walk, there's a similar shift that happens, right? When we confess something. When we confess that Jesus, you are Christ. When Jesus, Jesus, you are Lord. A shift in our stories happen. When we confess, Jesus, you are the Messiah, you're my Savior. We see a shift take place in our lives. There's a conflict that happens and Jesus tells us what this conflict is. In verse 34, it says, And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's sake will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful nation generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. So there's this conflict that we have in the way that we live, in the way that we used to live, one where we lived for our own purposes, for our own pleasure, for our own desires, and the life that Jesus calls us to live, one of denying ourselves, one of taking up our crosses and following him. There's this conflict. There's this tension. Prior to our confession of Jesus, we could live however we wanted, right? However we want to spend our time, our money, our, uh, our affection. We could just spend it however we want to. But the life that Jesus calls us to says we must live for his purpose and for his glory. And here's the thing. We look at this confession of Peter and we see only two outcomes. Right? Even, in this, even in this verse, verse 27, it says, On the way he asked his disciples, Who do you people say that I am? 
And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. So we only see two outcomes, two responses to Jesus, right? We, we automatically think that there are only two possible responses. People that either say, oh, Jesus is just John the Baptist or Elijah or one of the prophets. These people are ultimately people that reject Jesus as the Christ. And then we get to the people that say, oh, Jesus, you are the Christ. You are the Christ. I accept you as the Christ. We automatically think because of these two responses that these are the only ways we can respond to Jesus. And even in the Christian life, we think this. This is, uh, this is just one of the ways that we think that we can respond. We think that Jesus is just a good teacher. He's a good person to follow. He, he lived a good life, and I should emulate that. I could learn something from him. I could live a good life if I follow him, right? But ultimately, you still reject Jesus. These are the people that say, oh, Jesus is just John the Baptist, or he's just one of the prophets, right? And then we have those people that say, you are the Christ, that accept Jesus. And when we think about the disciples of Jesus, we think they fall into the second category. We think they that the disciples are the ones that said, oh, you are the Christ. And Peter just said it right now, right? And these are the pillars of the church. They built the church and they left everything they had to follow Jesus. They gave up family businesses. They gave up wealth and status to follow Jesus. And many of these disciples were eventually killed for their beliefs, right? They were martyred. And Peter was even crucified upside down on a cross. But if we read the book of Mark carefully, Peter falls into a third response a third outcome of people he falls into a third category when peter confesses jesus as christ jesus then goes into his plan right his plan for salvation he says "Uh, i'm going to suffer and die but i'm going to resurrect after three days he lays out his whole plan for peter and the disciples plainly the bible says but what does peter do next what does peter do to jesus he rebukes jesus you cannot make this up. He, he goes up to Jesus, the person he spent the last two and a half years watching him cast out demons, watching him heal people, watching him raise people from the dead. This person goes up to this man full of authority and says, no, you can't do that. Like, he's, he must be crazy, right? He has some really big nerve, <laughs> right? It says that he rebukes him. Peter rebukes Jesus. And in response, what does Jesus do? He does the only thing that's, 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 that is appropriate at this time. He kills him, right? He kills him on the spot. No, no, I'm just kidding. He doesn't kill him. He does something even worse. Honestly, this is worse than being struck down. He, it says, but turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan! Dang, imagine if Jesus came up to you and said that. <laughs> Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Actually, I like the King James Version of this better. There's something about the Old English that makes it more like, mm, powerful, right? It says, Get thee behind me, Satan, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but the things that be of men. Mm, yeah. Or a modern translation. Sit down, boy! You don't know what you're talking about. Right? Even though Peter confessed just one verse ago, he says, You are the Christ. He still didn't understand what that meant. He still struggled to believe that Jesus was Christ and Lord over his life. 
In fact, if we look at Jesus' explanation after he rebukes Peter, if we look at verse 38 again, it's a condemning verse for Peter. It's one that like pokes at him. For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. This verse, this saying that Jesus says, is in direct, he's, he's thinking about Peter when he says this. Because what happens later? When Peter is put to the test, when Jesus is arrested and he's taken to the, 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 the court of the high priest, what happens? He's asked, oh, I think I've seen you with Jesus. Are you one of his disciples? He says, no, I'm not. I don't know this guy. That just doesn't happen once either. It happens three times in the same night. Peter denies Jesus three times after saying he's the Christ. So Peter falls. He falters. He struggles. So Peter is not one of these two responses. It's not, he's not one that ultimately rejects Jesus when he hears the gospel. He's not one that says you are the Christ and he lives on fire for God. He's the third response. He's the third type of response. He's the one that confesses Jesus as Christ, but he struggles. But he struggles. He falters. He, he struggles to live in the reality of the, the confession that he made. You are the Christ. And I believe that this is where a lot of Christians are as well. I believe that there are people in this room that could face this as well. And to be honest, this is something that I struggle with as well. I, I come here every Sunday. I say, Jesus, you are Lord. Jesus, you are King. And I walk out the door and then, what should I eat? What should I do this week? What do I want to do? You've made this confession with your mouth. and You've believed it in your heart. Yet you still struggle to, to live in this reality. When struggles come our way, we reject Jesus as our king. The good news is, we're going to be okay. It's okay for us. I'm not here to con- condemn us. I'm not here to condemn myself. Right? I'm here to give you good news, the gospel. I'm here to reorient the way that we think. I'm here to refocus our eyes. Now, many scholars, they say that this passage that we read today, the passage known as Peter's Confession, right? It's the hinge between the two identities of Jesus that we see in the Gospel of Mark. The, the hinge between the authority of Jesus and the suffering of Jesus. Now, even in the title of the ESV, if you have the ESV Bible, it says, Peter confesses Jesus as the Christ. That's the heading. But honestly, if I, if I am a good reader of the book, I don't think that Peter's confession is actually the turning point. No, Peter's confession is just a reaction to the actual turning point. The true turning point of the story is not the confession that Peter gives, but it's the question that Jesus asks. And that question is, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? This is the very same question that Jesus asks us today. Every day. He says, who do you say that I am? Peter and the rest of the disciples thought that Jesus was their military leader. He, was, he came to free the Israelites and give them uh, glory and, and to, to, to usher in a new Israelite reign of abundance and prosperity. But Jesus questioned him. 
all the time. He said, do you not see? Do you have eyes and not see? Do you have ears and not hear? Have you been with me? Have you been with me for these past years and still not understand? Who do you say that I am? And many times we think that Jesus is our fortune teller. We go to him. We ask him, Jesus, what job do I take? Jesus, where do I move? Jesus, what person do I date? Right? These are life decisions that we just go to Jesus with. And this is his only function. He's just a fortune teller. Other times, we, we think he's our genie. We go to him and ask him, oh, Jesus, I really want this. Oh, give me my three wishes right now, right? That's what we think. And I'm not saying he's not these things. I'm not saying he can't do these things. But he's proven that he can do these things. In the first eight chapters, he said, come to me and I'll, I'll heal you. Come to me and I'll give you what you need. But then he also says in verse 36, What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? Jesus is more than just a fortune teller or a genie or someone that has come to set us free from our situations. He's the savior of our souls. He's wanting our souls. He's the lover of our souls. Who do you say that I am? This is the question that we must answer every day. Is Jesus just a good guy? Is he just someone that was, lived a good life that I want to follow after? Is he someone that was wise that I want to learn from? Or is Jesus truly the Christ of my life? Is he truly the Christ? Is he truly the Lord of my life? Is he truly the love of my life? And I want to end on this question today. Before we get into the suffering, right? The, the second half of the book of Mark, before we get into the suffering and the crucifixion and the resurrection, I want us to stay on this question, who do you say that I am? Because this is actually the question that Mark attempts to answer in this book. He attempts to answer it for us. Remember in the beginning, the first verse, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This is a statement. This is a confession. Even though Peter confessed this. And even though Jesus told Peter the outcome, that he's going to have victory over death, still Peter rebuked Jesus and denied him three times. He still struggled. Thankfully for us, his story didn't end there, right? We know, we know what happens to Peter. Peter eventually ended up as one of the pillars of the early church. We talked about this earlier. On the day of Pentecost, he led many, thousands of people to Christ. And he, and he actually was the first person to baptize a Gentile believer. And he was actually the person who was the primary source for this book that we're reading. Peter was proof that we can falter. We can fall to the wayside. It's okay to do that. But we still need to repent. We still need to go back to Jesus, who is the Lord of forgiveness, who is the Lord of redemption. He's the Lord of sanctification. He's sanctifying us. It's a process. Sanctification is not something that happens right away. It's something that happens over time. He takes beauty from ashes. He creates joy from mourning. Jesus is the one that turns this rough fisherman into a fisher of men. He can turn a programmer. He can turn an engineer. He can turn an English teacher into a pillar of faith. Right? One that is strong in the Lord. 
So Peter's confession is not the hinge in the book of Mark. It's this question. Who do you say that I am? This is the catalyst that changes this book. Jesus himself is the one who approaches us and asks this question. Who do you say that I am? Let's bow our heads in prayer. Lord, we come to you today. And we know that you've, you've already called us. You, you're the one who approaches us every day. And asks this question. You're the one that approached us even when we were against you. Even when we didn't know you. You knew us and you came to us. And you called us. And you asked us this question. And you even told us who you are. You've told us. You revealed yourself to us. So God, I pray that this word that you've given to us, this Bible, this revelation that you've given to us of yourself would be our foundation for what we say that you are. Let it not be from our own experiences. Let it not be from our own mind that we create who you are, God. For these are just idols before you. God, I pray that you would reveal who you are to us truly so that we may bow down and worship you, that we may fall in love with you again. God, we repent for any idols that we've constructed. God, you're not a genie that answers wishes. You're not a fortune teller that tells us what to do. You're a father that loves us. You're a savior that died for us to be with us. So we pray that nothing would come before you. Nothing would come before you and our souls, God. We pray that you would become the Christ of our hearts and the Christ, the King of our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.